Hi, I'm June Castlemere, and you're listening to In the Pocket, a podcast brought to you by the National Filipino American Lawyers Association. So this episode is the first that we were able to record remotely. Heidi Hennegrau, who was at her suburban Chicago home, interviewed our guest, Abby Rivamonte Mesa, in her house halfway across the country in San Francisco. The stars aligned, the technology worked, and some truly special guests made some spontaneous appearances as well. We hope you enjoy listening to Abby tell her story. Hello, everyone. We are happy to share with you today one of our favorites, Abigail Rivamonte Mesa. While she is captivating even before you meet her, for her beauty and the warm vibe that surrounds her every time she smiles, if you stop there, you would miss some of the things that are most compelling about this woman, including that at just 39 years of age, this Filipina lawyer is one of the standouts in the legal community, that she has tried more than 50 cases to verdict, with many of her not guilty verdicts garnering buzz from media giants like ABC and Fox, and that she is a leader and a mentor. We are excited to share her story with you. So without further ado, welcome, Abby. Hi, Heidi. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It is our pleasure. We're excited to to talk about who you are, where you came from, and how you ended up where you are today. So let's start from the beginning. Where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in Manila, Philippines, and my family and I immigrated to the United States when I was six, and we ended up in the beautiful town of sunny San Diego, and I grew up in a community filled with Filipinos in a a neighborhood called Mira Mesa. How many siblings do you have? Two older brothers and my mom and dad. We grew up um, in a small apartment in Mira Mesa, and we lived with my aunt and uncle and his uh, his kids. And then we, um, you know, settled in Mira Mesa, and that was our home for many, many years until I moved to San Francisco for law school. So tell me a little bit about your mom and your dad. What were they like? Sure. Um, my mom and dad um, were very much polar opposites. My mom was a fiery Filipina and my dad was a, a, a very chill dad that kind of just went with the flow of things. Um, my One of my best memories of my mom uh, is just her ability to be such a hard worker and balancing it all. You know, this is a woman that raised uh, her three kids she, you know, moved up the ranks at the bank and, you know, you know, 30 years later, she retired and, you know, had a, a very, you know, a very, very great career throughout the whole process. And how about your dad? You said he wasn't exactly uh, quite as feisty. So um, my dad was an engineer in the Philippines. Uh, he studied engineering and then we moved to the United States and I think, you know, as many Filipinos experience, it's, it's this idea that, you know, the idea that it's, it's hard to transition into the same career that you had when you first, you know, when you moved to the United States. Because, you know, in, in the States, they don't really recognize your degrees as being that from, you know, legitimate colleges. But my dad went to, you know, he, he went to a school that was, I mean, pretty much considered Ivy League in the Philippines. Um, And he was just never able to really, you know, garner that same respect that he did when he, 
was in the Philippines. And so he ended up just taking very much, you know, uh, blue collar jobs. Um, he worked for the airlines um, and was a janitor. He, he did maintenance for the planes for, for a very long time until he retired. Um, the, the perk of that, of course, is that if you, if you are a family member of an airline employee, you get to fly everywhere. So even though right. my dad, <laughs> so even though my dad may not have achieved his, you know, quote unquote dreams of being an engineer, he was, you know, very much provided for the family and was amazing at it, and you know, was able to, you know, take us to different places, and we traveled a lot for free. What Filipino doesn't like that? <laughs> yes, well, that, and you know, a lot of what you said sounds you know, pretty familiar and consistent with the Filipino experience, um, especially a family that's emigrated. So tell us about your kids. How old are they? What are their names? And, and what are they like? Sure. So I have two, two very crazy, fun-loving kids. Um, William Wolfgang Mesa Wolfie uh, is my eldest. He's five years old um, and he's very smart and funny and wants our attention all the time. Uh, and then I have Charlie. Um, her real name is Charlotte. We call her Charlie. So I have Charlie and Wolfie. And Char <laughs> Charlie is two years old. And she is independent, loud, headstrong, bullies her her big brother. So I have no idea. Hmm, where'd she get this? <laughs> no idea where she gets these traits from. Oh, here are my kids. Here's Hi, oh, Mama. we're recording. Oh. Hi, <laughs> Sorry. Hi, Heidi. Hi, Heidi. Hi. Okay. Hello. Nice to meet you. And what's your name? Charlie. Charlie Mesa? Okay, thank you, Charlie Mesa. Well, who's next? Wolfie. Uh, I'm Wolfie. Wolfie Mesa, and I'm five years old. Hi, Paula. Completely unfazed by the joyful interruption, Abby and Heidi continue their conversation as Abby speaks to her happy but busy family life growing up. Growing up in San Diego, we were surrounded by a lot of Filipino families. So I think there was definitely that comfort level of being around people that had our same, you know, immigration experience or immigrant experience. And for, for our particular household, um, my mom's brothers and sisters who moved to San Diego from the Philippines would, you know, stay with us. We were the, the fir their first stop, you know, from the airport and straight to our house. And so they lived with us growing up. And, you know, there's, there was a time at its peak, we probably had 12 people living in a three-bedroom house. That's cozy. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know, right? I think that for, for me, as a kid, I always, you know, dreamt about having my own room and my own space and wanting all of those things. And I, I didn't have that. But in exchange, I had, you know, s such great memories of having a house full of our, our family members. And I think that really shaped, you know, who I was in terms of um, really embracing my culture because it was, you know, it was Filipino all day, every day. It was great. It was wonderful. <laughs> it can be a mixed blessing, though, I suppose. So, you know, this uh, experience that you've described, emigrating to the United States where, you know, parents can't necessarily realize the, the uh, 
power of their own degrees and what they accomplished in the Philippines, um, but yet providing for their kids so that their kids can realize those dreams here in the United States. Tell us about, you know, what brought you to law school? When did you decide you wanted to become a lawyer and uh, why did you go? Yeah, no, I, I think you, you bring up a lot of great points, Heidi, right? I, if, I feel like for our parents, they never really thought or, you know, second guessed any of, of their career moves. They did it all for the family. And, and for that, you know, the next generation gets to reap a lot of those benefits. So even though my, my parents were probably very limited in, in, in their opportunities after they moved here, they wanted to make sure that we had, we had it all. Um, so I, I would say that I'm, I'm, I'm most thankful for my parents for paving that way and making it possible for my brothers and I to pursue high, higher degrees. Um, for me, I decided to go to law school um, right after college. My, my brother, Ian, who's also an attorney now, we're the first in our family. I kind of just you know, wanted to be like him growing up. I always wanted to be like him. So when he said he was moving to San Francisco, I said, what's there? Take me with you. <laughs> so I, I, I don't really have, have much of a, of a story of like wanting to be a lawyer since I was a child. It was more of where was my kuya going and how could I tag along? Um, and he, he, he had such a great experience at USF that I decided to, to follow his footsteps and, you know, make my way uh, to San Francisco. And I've, I, I've never regretted that decision since. Yeah, I'm sure every uh, big brother is happy to have his little sister in tow. So I'm sure that was great. <laughs> so yeah, he, you... well, <laughs> he, he also was like, stop bothering me. We're already oh. in our 20s. Why are you still tagging along? So I'm sure I'm sure his version of the story is very different. Well, I love it. Um, so once you were in law school, were you able to maintain that connection to the Filipino community or, or did that kind of fall by the wayside? No, I mean, it, it definitely, I, I definitely continued that connection and it, it got much, much stronger, I, I would say. Um, you know, when I was in law school, I was able to join this really great organization um, called F-Bank, the Filipino Bar Association of Northern California. Shout out to my F-Bank family uh, who really paid <laughs> the way. I hear them wave. cheering. Yay. Um, and if it wasn't for F-Bank, I, I wouldn't be where I am now because they literally opened doors for me to, you know, get that first internship, to get that first job. Um, and, and make my way up the ranks in the organization's leadership. And if it wasn't for, you know, that first encounter going to one of their uh, law school mixers, I, I think I, I wouldn't be half the attorney that I am now if it wasn't for them. Well, from what I understand, you have um, paid them back abundantly for their investment in you by investing in them. Uh, I hear that you were the F-Bank president. I was. I, I, I was the past president um, and I was I served on their board and continue to be part of their advisory, um, their advisory board today. And, I, I, you know, you you mentioned this idea of, of paving the way. And I, I think that is absolutely key. I think that we, you know, we recognize that we wouldn't have gotten here if it wasn't for 
leaders and mentors along the line. And it's, you know, it's our duty to also pay it forward and make sure that we mentor students to also thrive and have, you know, similar experiences as us in successing through the career. And, you know, I've, I've, I've made that one of my priorities um, as I was moving up the ranks was to make sure that I continued to mentor a group of students every year. And I could probably say that I've, I've had maybe a, a, a mentorship or mentor-mentee family now that's growing in number. We're probably a, a clan <laughs> of 50 or so, um, and they've, oh they've mentored other students. Yeah, so we, we, are, we are definitely our own little gang of uh, mentor-mentees. And we continue to, to have a, a strong relationship. I've seen them through their, their career and now they're, you know, getting married, having kids. It's all coming full circle and also making me feel very, very old. So <laughs> I think the, June, Jonah and I have you uh, in spades on that one, but we'll save no, that for no. another day. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Well, I know that you aren't just paying lip service to the importance of mentoring because I've certainly... No, I certainly know and have heard about you that uh, you are a great mentor. Um, I also love some of the other things that I've heard in terms of how people describe you. We asked your husband, David Mesa, how he and others would describe you. And this is some I of what I paid he him. Heard. I paid him. I paid him. <laughs> whatever, whatever he said, I paid him to say this. He cannot well, shame is, the is, family. <laughs> this is perfect. He says, Abigail is a fighter advocate, leader, mentor, and chief of every role she steps into. Ask anyone who knows her and they will describe her as a badass, ride or die, fiercely loyal, passionate, selfless, and heroic. I mean, that is truly a tremendous statement. So I have to ask, where did you get this badass scrappiness? I think I have a little of that DNA from myself and I'm pretty sure it comes from my Filipina mother. I'm curious, do you attribute any of that feistiness to your Pinay genes? Oh, absolutely. hundred um, percent. You know, I, I mentioned that I grew up in a, a, a very full house of, of Filipino, um, Filipino family members. And at the helm of that was my Lola, right? She, she was the OG. She was the original gangster. She was who we looked up to. She was the leader. Um, she was the wise one, the fearless one. And all of those characteristics trickled down to her, her, her own children, my mom, um, and especially to her grandchildren, because we looked up to, to my Lola, we looked up to my mom very, uh, you know, in, in more ways than one. They were loud, they were opinionated, they're extremely <laughs> funny, great sense of, sense of humor, um, and, you know, just very passionate in everything that they did. So it, it, it was great, you know, having them as, as role models. Oh my gosh, yes. I love Filipino women. They may be small in stature, but boy, I think most people are more scared of them than uh, a lot of other people. <laughs> oh, um, of course, right? And I think I think for us growing up, there was always a, a language barrier um, in terms of dealing with other uh, other communities and other people in our everyday in our everyday lives. And for my mom and for my Lola, they didn't have, you know, the best English, but they sure could, you know, you know, clap back in Tagalog and tell me everything that they, they thought and believed. 
Um, and I would, I would translate that to whoever we were speaking to in, in my nice little, you know, Abigail voice back then. Right. But so sweet. if they only knew what my mom and my Lola were really saying, <laughs> it would, you know. The other um, comment that your husband mentioned that uh, really struck a chord with me is he also described you as, as someone who has shed blood, sweat, and tears to protect underserved communities in San Francisco and the Filipino-American community at large. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Where has your career path taken you? Um, we'd love to hear about it. I mean, since moving to San Francisco, I think that, um, you know, I've, I've really embraced everything that San Francisco has to offer. Um, and a big piece of that is also recognizing a lot of the inequities that exist within our city. Uh, San Francisco is home to billionaires, right? People who are swimming in money and wealth and prestige. But on the opposite side of that is that San Francisco is also home to a lot of folks who are very, very, very poor. You know, people who are struggling um, to get by, people who have been pushed out of the heart of the city and are now living in the margins, living in public housing, um, folks who are unhoused and, and are homeless, um, people who are trying to make sure that they are able to provide for their family and maintain their rent control department without the fear of getting displaced by a landlord that may, might evict, evict them at a moment's notice, right? So this is the diverse uh, community that we live in in San Francisco. And I think for me, um, I, I recognize that. I see that every day. And I've, I've, I see that, you know, I saw that as a trial lawyer in the courtroom representing indigent clients. I see that now in City Hall, um, in my role as um, on the legislative side and creating public policy. And I think what, what David's alluding to in, in the sense that I've shed blood, sweat, and tears for the community is that I've, you know, I've always represented um, you know, minority interests, the, the interests of the marginalized community, because I know that that's where um, they need, you know, my help most. That's where they need, um, you know, other public defenders and other legislators help the most is, is through that voice, because they don't get to, you know, fight those battles on their own when you're, you know, fighting battles against billionaires or, you know, uh, corporate entities. So I think that's that's kind of where you know, where that statement comes from is that, you know, I, I will do anything to make sure that that community continues to be heard and that they are not in the shadows of, of these issues. I understand that you served as the deputy public defender in the office of the public defender in San Francisco. Are there any uh, cases that you're most proud of that you'd like to share? Yeah, um, I was I was at that office uh, for about ten years. Um, it was a great, great experience, and really has shaped who I am at, as an attorney. I worked under the leadership of um, Jeff Adachi, the late and great Jeff Adachi, who was my mentor, friend, um, and a renowned public defender nationwide. Um, and I think that having that opportunity has really, you know, paved the way for the kind of advocate that I am. I had uh, many different cases from misdemeanors to felonies, serious felonies, sex crimes, um, homicides, all of those, all of those different um, 
types of cases. But for me, I think the ones that stand out the most um, during that, that time period are the ones where I still continue to have a relationship with the client. Um, one that, that stands out in particular is a, a young woman that I represented when I was still a, a baby public defender. So I was still in misdemeanors. And I, I represented a woman, a young woman who at the time just turned 18. And she was accused of um, gun possession, of having a firearm in her purse. Um, she didn't know that the firearm was in her purse. She, you know, was staying with a boyfriend um, who was, you know, not, not the best influence on her. And she had to, you know, take the rap for that case and make sure that, um, you know, and had to go to jury trial because we wanted to make sure that she didn't compromise her innocence by taking uh, a guilty plea just to cover up for, you know, you know, the misgressions of, of her boyfriend. And so, and, you know, I, I bring up that case and it's, it sounds like a, a very simple case, right? So if someone just has a gun, it's in their purse, what's the big deal? Oh, not the crime of the century. But for me, the reason why that case holds so much meaning is because that was a very pivotal moment in this young woman's life, right? If she, sure, sure, right? If she pled guilty to something she didn't do, she would have that record, which would then affect her ability to find a job, to get her own housing, um, and then to later provide for her family. Uh, we successfully beat that case, and she, you know, which it ended up being such a blessing for her because she didn't have a criminal record. And, you know, and now she is a mom. She is a mom of two. She, you know, works. She has a, you know, a, a good job, has a great relationship with her family. But at that moment in, in her life, it could have easily gone the other way. And, you know, to be labeled as something that you're not and to have that criminal record really shapes who you become in the future. And for her, it could have gone uh, down a, a completely, you know, wrong path, which would have led to a lot of closed doors. And so I think as an advocate, as a public defender, our role is to make sure that that never happens to anyone, that we you know, continue to protect people and to allow doors to open for them and more opportunities to thrive versus them, you know, being part of a, a system that oppresses them and, you know, and doesn't give them a second chance or an opportunity. So in, in that, at that moment, it was so important, so pivotal for us to, to fight this case. Um, and I think for me, regardless of what the charge is, you could be charged with, you know, a, a DUI or a petty theft or a simple misdemeanor, or in this case, a simple gun possession. And I would still give it my all as if it was a serious crime where you can get sent to prison for life. There's no difference in, the type of representation that you give to a person based on what the crime is, right? What the, what you are accused for. And I think that's why that, that one simple misdemeanor case sticks out so much because it, it means so much for someone's future. And that's what we, we, you know, we tend to forget. We're like, Oh, it's just a simple little thing. Who cares? No big deal. She'll get over it. Bump in the road. You know, for someone like her, it's not, you know, you're, you're a young person of color and it's, it's a big deal. No, absolutely. And I think a lot of people tend to judge the value of a case based on the numbers at stake, the dollars, how sexy the names are of the of the people on yes, one side absolutely. of the V or other, of when course. really, um, you know, as you say, 
these types of cases where you change the trajectory of someone's life forever, that, um, that can obviously be much far more impactful than anything that's just a matter of dollars and cents. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and now you're, you're working as the chief of staff for San Francisco supervisor, Matt Haney. Uh, tell us about your role there and the kind of work you're doing now. Sure. So um, I transitioned from the courtroom to, to City Hall, and now a lot of my daily responsibilities have been on the legislative end, uh, creating, uh, helping shape laws, public policy, um, and doing that type of work, which, which to me is just as important and brings so much you know, meaning to, to my life and my career, um, because I know that I'm effectuating change for that same community that I was helping at the public defender's office. So it was a natural transition to, to do um, something a little different, but at the same time serve that core community of uh, marginalized, the marginalized uh, population, indigent uh, community, people of color, immigrants. It's, it's still the same population. So I think that's, that's been you know, truly rewarding for me on a daily basis, knowing that I'm effectuating change to, to my same uh, core community of, of clients and people that we help. So tell us a little bit about the district that you represent. So, so District 6, which is in San Francisco, is a very, very diverse district. Um, it encompasses the Tenderloin, Civic Center, Mid-Market, South of Market, Yerba Buena, Rincon Hill, South Beach, Mission Bay, and Treasure Island. So a lot of very different neighborhoods. But one of the reasons that this new position drew me in was because it represents a large concentration of Filipinos in the South of Market. And the reason why that has so much meaning to me is because um, in our district is this rich culture of uh, Filipinos that have been here for hundreds of years, right? Um, in, in the 1920s, the most notable group that first came to the South of Market in San Francisco were 40 Filipino merchant Marines. They were part of the Grand Oriente Filipino Masonic Lodge, and they pulled all of their money together to purchase this hotel um, that would uh, house all of their families and future generations. It's called the Grand Oriente, which is still in the South of Market um, in a neighborhood called South Park. And today, you know, according to the census there, the 2010 census, there were more than 5,000 Filipino Americans still in the South of Market. And that number is growing, but it's also diminishing as more Filipino families get gentrified and pushed out of the city. Um, so, so to me, to be involved in a district that represents uh, this group of constituents, a group of Filipinos, uh, is so important because I know that I'm also helping them in, you know, being able to stay in a place that they've called home for for generations through, you know, in the in their family. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that we're actually in the midst of a truly remarkable period of time in our history where um, we're all on lockdown right now. It is April in the year 2020, and we are in the midst of the COVID-19 coronavirus epidemic. Um, has that uh, come into play at all in terms of the work that you're doing in your office now? 
Oh my goodness, absolutely. I think I have never been busier in my life than I am now um, in terms of handling both work and and my responsibilities at home as a mom of two. Um, it's it's like Groundhog's Day. It's the same thing over and over, but intensified because there is a global pandemic that we are, you know, uh, dealing with. For for me and my role with our office, I think it's being responsive and helpful to our constituents who are, you know, going through this uh, at a very dire time. A lot of the folks that we represent in my district, in our district, District Six. Um, are are very very um, you know much afraid of what's happening because they are unhoused. There, you know, we repre- represent a district um, that has a lot of people who um, are living in shelters or are living in congregate living spaces or are on the street where they have a higher risk of getting coronavirus. And um, mm-hmm. as as legislators, we have to act boldly and quickly to make sure that they are protected. And one of the ways that we've been trying to do that is to fight for them to get their own, um, you know, hotel rooms, their own bathrooms that is that are paid for by the city to help uh, prevent, you know, a community outbreak. So in that sense, we, we, we are very much, you know, working nonstop um, to make that happen, and that's just one of one of many many examples of things that we are working on. Um, we're also fighting to make sure that workers have um, personal protective equipment, that uh, small businesses continue that they can uh, survive uh, post COVID, and figuring out ways that we can support them financially through the budget process. All of those different things, um, are, you know, is is what's is is what we're struggling with. Well, and that is that is obviously truly important work and consistent with the theme of your your life and your career to date. Um, just another way that you are really directly affecting people's lives in a very critical critical way. So, um, on behalf of all of those people, thank you for all of your hard work in that regard and and that of uh, Mr. Haney. Um, but I also, I, I heard you make a reference to your kids, and uh, I, I imagine that's another way that you are um, serving an important role and directly affecting the lives of, uh, of others. They, they are a lot of fun, and even though um, we are sheltering in place, we are, we are trying to find a good balance of work and them. They are very much present in all of our Zoom calls and st- uh, staff meetings. They're in the background screaming um, at the top of their lungs, asking for ice cream at 10 in the morning. Um, hey, they've in- got priorities. I respect <laughs> that. Yeah. In the middle of very uh, important staff meetings and meetings with, you know, a lot of important stakeholders. My son is in the background yelling my name. It's, it's fine. They have to understand that that's the, the new normal now. Exactly. That is the world we're living in. And uh, your husband, David, how long have you guys been married? Oh, my goodness. David and I have been together since I was stalking him in law school. So, <laughs> what, the, like 15 years? I, I only went to the library because I knew David would be there. So, um, I would I would stalk him there, pretend like I was studying, but really I was, I was just there to harass him. So, it, it worked <laughs> out. Look, we're here. 
Well, and you picked a good one. So just to give him a shout out, can you tell us what he's doing right now? He's a lawyer as well. Yes? Yeah. Um, at this very moment, he is um, making sure that the kids don't get into the bedroom to interrupt this podcast. Um, <laughs> but yes, David is a lawyer at Steptoe and Johnson. He focuses on products liability. He is one of the most brilliant, smartest people I know. And he didn't pay me to say that. It's actually the honest truth. I, I would never say that to his face. Um, don't worry. We won't tell him. <laughs> I would never say that to his face, but um, but he's he's great. He's he's an excellent lawyer, but he's also um, a, a doting dad and and really great with the kids and makes it all makes all of this possible for sure. Well, and he's Filipino as well. So you know, what aspects of uh, your Filipino gra- background do you try to instill in your kids as they grow up here in the American culture? Yeah, I, I think for the both of us, it's it's very much um, a, a part of who we are in our in our daily existence, right? Our kids know that they are Filipino. Our kids know that um, you know that we had certain struggles growing up that they will never experience. And how do they know that at such a young age? It's because we harass them with it every day. <laughs> you know that I never had that. We are one of those parents for sure. Um, our, our kids have the luxury of, of, you know, asking for whatever they want. And then somehow it miraculously appears because David and I cave in, but it, it <laughs> But mind you, when that happens, we also tell them that we never got any of those things and that they have to be appreciative of their existence um, now. So uh, we guilt them a lot, uh, which is like, like great Filipino parents, we do a lot of guilty in our house. Um, but, yes, I have, uh, I have threatened my children to, that we will institute the year of deprivation so that um, they can understand what it was like. But uh, like you, I haven't really held fast to that promise. Oh, just yet. my goodness. I mean, but but in, in all honesty, I think that the kids know that they are Filipino. They know that they look different from you know some of the other the, some of their other classmates. Um, you know, we we celebrate um, our brownness, and you know, and and they know it. They we celebrate it through the food we eat, through the activities that we do, and celebrating Filipino American History Month in October. And reading books of you know by by Filipino authors and children's books that focus on on that experience, and that's you know that's that's every day in our house. They know that they know that when I speak in Tagalog and they say, "What did you say?" That I'll explain to them what I said, <laughs> and then I will quiz them on those words. Um, they you know they know that there is an expectation for uh, from them to always be true to their Filipino self. Um, and embrace all of those things as as positives and not as negatives. And if they ever forget, I will come down so hard on them that they will remember. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, I love Filipino parents. There's no yeah. sugar coating. There's no, no soft touches. None of it that. is. Uh, you will be empowered. Period. End of story. <laughs> I will make you feel good, but, you know, but know that, that just because I'm talking like this, that I'm very serious in what I'm saying. So that's right. They learn. So on that note, you know, in terms of, um, you know, empowering our Filipina sisters and, 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 and brothers, 
and other lawyers. Um, do you have any advice for Filipino women on on how they could embrace their legal careers, their their non legal careers, and just go out there and kick ass? I I think for me, um, my advice would just be do you right. I think that if you follow this mentality of of being true to yourself and not following what everyone else is doing and just being true to yourself and whatever that means to you, then everything will come into place. You might not make everyone happy in doing that. You might create some enemies in doing that. But as long as you are happy with the end result and you don't look back regretting anything, then I think everything will fall into place, right? There's there's no there's no magic recipe to all of this. There's no magic recipe to life. Uh, there's no you know there's no really planning ahead. Who would have thought that we'd be in this global pandemic? So I, I think my perspective has has definitely changed post COVID in terms of what type of advice I'm giving the folks, and it's just a matter of really living, you know, taking everything day by day, and you know, embracing what we know that we can control, which is ourselves and in who we are. I absolutely agree. Abby, it has been so wonderful to talk to you. Um, I uh, have loved hearing your stories and I'm so glad that we have the opportunity to share them with the rest of our community. So thank you. Yay, thank you so much, Heidi. You've been listening to In the Pocket. Many thanks to Abby and Heidi for being able to record this interview remotely. If you'd like more information on Infala, please visit us on Facebook or online at infala.com.